Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Welcome to Pax Britannica, Episode 9, Gunpowder, Treason, and Plot. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. Last week, we heard about James's accession to the throne of England and Ireland, the differences between his governing style and his predecessors, his policy in establishing peace in Ireland and with Spain, and his first fruitless attempts to bring England and Scotland into a closer political union. That last topic will continue in this episode, and likely every episode until the death of James, as while he gradually stops pushing Union quite so hard, his desire to truly create a Kingdom of Great Britain never really goes away. As we covered last week, James's accession was remarkably peaceful. Elizabeth, despite never marrying or having a child, had managed to complete the most important job of any monarch, providing for the succession. It is a testament to everyone involved in both England and Scotland that the secession was as smooth as it was, but that's not to say it went off perfectly. In June 1603, while James was making his way to London from Edinburgh, plots against his person were already afoot. Two plots emerged in the summer of 1603. The main plot, seemingly an attempt to replace James with his cousin Arabella, and the by-plot, a plot that would not seem out of place in Scotland. We will cover the by-plot first, as it came to light first, and had much more forthcoming conspirators. The main aim of the plot was simple, capture the king, take him to the Tower of London, and present their demands. Like I said, a plot that James would recognise from personal experience in Scotland. Their demands were the toleration of Catholics, the control over several strongholds, the prosecution of several ministers, including Robert Cecil, 
a pardon for their actions, and the granting of hostages to ensure the king's good behaviour. So not much, then. The instigator of the plot appears to have been a man by the name of William Watson, a man known to the king, who had travelled to Edinburgh in the months before the death of Elizabeth. Watson was a Catholic, but hated the Spanish, and he had been granted an audience with James, where he pledged his loyalty to the Stuarts and begged for Catholic toleration once he became king. James and his court offered vague, but apparently very promising assurances, and Watson returned south convinced that the future king would be a strong ally and friend to his Catholic subjects. For this reason, when James was proclaimed king in March, Watson appears to have expected immediate declarations of toleration, which was naturally not forthcoming. Some historians, such as Dr. Mark Nichols of Cambridge, describes Watson as mentally unwell, or at the very least paranoid. He was certainly concerned about the Jesuits, the Society of Jesus, that had arose following the Reformation, and he was a prolific writer on their plots and the danger they posed to the Kingdom of England. Nichols suggested that it was this paranoia of a Jesuit conspiracy against James that motivated him to launch his own conspiracy. If he didn't act, then the Jesuits would. And if not the Jesuits, then the Puritans. Watson was the reasonable one, you see. The others were extremists, and only with the king in his hands could the kingdom be secured. The conspiracy assembled sympathetic Catholic lords and gentry, attracting conspirators with different bait. For some, no act was out of bounds when the fate of the kingdom was on the line. Other, more conscionable dissidents were approached with tales of imminent Puritan or Jesuit plots or other vague treasons. Violence would be kept to a minimum, Watson promised, and he personally seemed to hope so. Some of the king's counsellors, the ones at fault, might have to lose their heads in order for the conspirators to keep theirs, and there would undoubtedly be bloodshed in actually seizing the king. But once James was in their control, matters could be settled, like gentlemen. The plotters assembled. The plan was to gather an armed force, surprise the court at Greenwich on Midsummer Night. Then, after capturing the king, they would take him to the tower and explain their demands. Watson held out the hope that James, as a man known to be fond of polemics and theological ponderings, could be converted to Catholicism during his enforced sabbatical. Sadly for Watson, the planned seizure of the royal person was thwarted by the withdrawal from the plot of Lord Grey of Wilton. Grey was a charismatic military man, and was expected to bring the required muscle. However, he also greatly distrusted Watson, and at the last minute backed out of the agreed plan, although he did not give up on conspiring against James. Further hampering the midsummer plan was the court's sudden decision to move. Lacking the expected military support, and the king's location no longer as expected, Watson fled London. In his wake, his fellow conspirators were rounded up and arrested, and Watson would remain at large until August. On the 15th of November, 1603, seven plotters were on trial in Winchester for treason. All pled not guilty but by the end of the day, all but one were convicted and sentenced to the traitor's death. 
to be hanged, drawn, and quartered. But only three men would actually face this fate in the end. How did the plot fall apart? Well, someone had talked. Someone always talks. The talker in this case was Anthony Copley, the son of a prominent Catholic exile. A poet and a writer, Copley had joined the conspiracy with enthusiasm, but the expected violence necessary in carrying out the plot made him uneasy. Copley approached his sister and the Catholic archpriest George Blackwell, explaining the plan to both and asking for their advice. Both immediately reported what they'd learned, with instructions to inform the court, and Copley's arrest was ordered. He was in the tower by the 9th of July. Now in custody, Copley spilled the beans. All of the beans, every single bean he could find, he spilled. He named Watson and Gray and everyone else he could think of. He knew parts of the main plot as well and confessed what he could. He explained the planned assaults on the court and on the tower and other royal strongholds. Throughout July, he recounted conversations he'd had with Watson and other conspirators, pausing only as the coronation took place. The forthcoming nature of these confessions might suggest that Copley was being coerced in some way. Torture was allowed in cases of treason, after all. But for Copley, the only motivation he needed was his guilty conscience. His genuine contrition would save him in the end. Only three conspirators were actually executed for the by-plot. The first was, of course, William Watson. Watson was just as forthcoming to his interrogators as Copley, but with much less contrition. He regretted his treason, absolutely he did, but the king had failed to follow through on his promises. He wished he hadn't had to act, but because of the king's failure, he had had no choice. As one of the ringleaders to a conspiracy against the king, his life was probably forfeit already, but this defence didn't help him. In addition to his other defence, that James had brought this on himself, Watson stuck to the argument that he had acted before James's coronation, and until the king was anointed, he was no king, and his subjects had an opportunity to make their wishes known. The reaction to this particular argument wasn't as negative as you might think outside the courtroom, but in that courtroom in November 1603, Watson found no sympathetic ears. His testimony and defence was described as absurd and without grace. The second man to face the traitor's death was William Clark. Clark was, like Watson, a Catholic priest, and like Watson took the king to task for failing to uphold his supposed promises, and proclaimed the same argument as Watson, that until the king was granted full royal authority from God upon his coronation, acting against him could not be treason. Unlike Watson, however, he was far more convincing in this argument. Not convincing enough, as he shared his fate with Watson. The third person to be executed for his part in the by-plot was George Brooke, the brother of Henry Brooke, Lord Cobham. Brooke was the missing link between the by-plotters and the so-called main-plotters. On the 17th of July, in the Tower, Brooke confessed that his brother had known about Watson's plot. 
Not only that, but he had offered to assist in carrying it out and covering it up once it fizzled out. Bad enough, but Brock went further. He claimed that his brother had been organising his own treason against the king. This is what became known as the main plot. In the view of Nichols, Brooke's defence was one of the strongest offered. He declared that he had written proof from the king, ordering him to go undercover and sniff out any plots against him. He claimed that he was just about to denounce his fellow conspirators when he was arrested. Problem solved. He was an agent provocateur working on the monarch's orders. Except, not quite. Brooke's problem was threefold. Firstly, he couldn't actually produce this written evidence of James's request, and the king himself flatly denied ever writing one. Second, Brooke was the link between the by-plot and the so-called main plot. If he was an agent provocateur, he was incredibly efficient. Thirdly, Brooke was a Protestant. Now, you may think this would have worked in his favour in a Protestant monarchy, but James, ever the peacemaker, likely considered the optics that this plot offered. For a Protestant from a noble family to share the fate of two Catholic priests would surely be a sign that the king was a just ruler that would punish treason equally. After his sentence was read out, that of death, Brooke was temporarily speechless. He continued to proclaim his defence that his treason was committed out of loyalty until the last After their trial and conviction on the 15th of November, Watson and Clark had to wait two weeks before they faced their fate. On the 29th, the two priests were tied to a wooden slat, which was tied to a horse and drawn to Winchester's Market Square. They ascended the gallows, made short speeches, and were then hanged. Whether or not they were then disemboweled, castrated, or otherwise mutilated while still conscious is unclear. It didn't always happen. One record describes Clark still being conscious when he was removed from the noose, and that their executions were otherwise botched. After they finally died, their bodies were sliced into quarters and dispersed across the kingdom to be displayed. Hence, hanged, drawn, and quartered. Brooke with the benefit of noble birth, faced only the headsman's axe, being decapitated on Winchester Castle Green on the 5th of December, proclaiming his loyalty to the end. All the other conspirators of the byplot, including Copley, were reprieved. Some remained imprisoned, others exiled. Copley was one such exile, travelling Europe until at least 1609, when he disappears out of history. So that was the byplot. So-called because it's a sideline to the main plot, but, as we'll see, the main plot has a lot less going for it. The main plot's principal conspirators were Henry Brooke, the 11th Baron Cobham, and the brother of George, and Sir Walter Raleigh. Yes, Sir Walter Raleigh, famous privateer and English national hero. As mentioned, Cobham had been denounced in the confessions of his younger brother, He had already been suspected due to the close familial connection, but the outright accusation led to his arrest and imprisonment in the Tower. What had his brother actually said? Well, Brooke described a plot between Cobham, Raleigh, and the Austrian envoy Charles de Ligny, Prince of Arenberg, 
in which his brother had requested 600,000 crowns from the Habsburgs to, quote, assist and furnish a second action for the surprise of his majesty, end quote. When questioned about this contact with the Austrian envoy, Copham denied his brother's accusation, instead saying he'd only spoken to Arenberg to purchase dogs and horses. Raleigh, also now imprisoned in the tower, then threw Cobham under the bus and told his questioners that they really should investigate his links with the Austrians more closely. Cobham, hearing this, raged that Raleigh was the instigator of the main plot, but then accepted his own involvement. As the by-plotters tried to outdo each other with their contrition, their connection to the main plotters came up more and more frequently. Cobham admitted to asking Arenberg for money, and when asked, did not deny saying that he wished for the day that, quote, the king and his cubs were all taken away, end quote. Raleigh faced his own trial two days after the by-plotters and was found guilty of treason. Cobham was tried a week after Raleigh, and his defence was, essentially, that he had considered acts of treason, but never planned to actually carry them out. He was found guilty by a jury of his peers, but both he and Raleigh kept their heads. Like with the by-plotters, the king was merciful to a point. Both Raleigh and Cobham would remain in the Tower of London for many, many years. Raleigh was released in 1616, and his time at liberty will be the topic of a future episode. Cobham would only be temporarily released in 1617, to allow him to summer in Bath, and he was allowed the same generosity the following year, this time, his jailers seemed to have just let him go, and he never returned to the tower, dying impoverished in January 1619. So those are the by and main plots, the first challenges to James's rule in England. But of course, they were not the only ones, and are almost completely overshadowed by the true star of the conspiratorial show. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that the 1605 conspiracy against King James is possibly the most famous event of his reign, at least in British popular culture. Remember, remember, the 5th of November, the gunpowder, treason and plot. I see no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Despite his name becoming a byword for treason, Guy Fawkes was not the originator of the plan to assassinate the king and his parliament. That dubious honour goes to Robert Catesby, the son of a Northamptonshire knight and a veteran conspirator. He had joined the Earl of Essex's failed uprising in 1601, but escaped with his head after a short imprisonment 
and a large fine. Upon Elizabeth's death in 1603, Catesby and a number of other known dissidents were preemptively arrested, just in case. The government's suspicions appear to have been well-founded. Catesby had been among those who had approached the Spanish crown to request an invasion in support of English Catholics. After his release, Catesby returned to his sedition. Nichols, who is again our main source on these Jacobean plotters, suspects that Catesby had decided on a scheme to use gunpowder to kill the leading men of the kingdom by early 1604. Any hope of religious toleration from the new king was firmly dead if Catesby even expected it at all. By this time, in 1604, Catesby had brought together the core of Catholic dissidents. Thomas Percy, the cousin of the Earl of Northumberland, Christopher and John Wright, brothers and friends of Catesby, and Catesby's cousin, Thomas Winter. It was Winter that would bring the face of the plot into the conspiracy, travelling to the Spanish Netherlands and recruiting a talented ensign, one Guy Fawkes. Fawkes had been born into a Protestant family, but after the death of his father, his mother married into a staunchly Catholic family. It appears that it was this connection that led to his conversion, and it was this faith that led Fawkes to the continent in 1592. He enlisted with the Spanish armies, and made a name for himself as a particularly brave soldier at the Siege of Calais in 1596. He was a particularly talented sapper, or combat engineer, who was in charge of undermining fortifications. This was an ancient method of siege warfare. The foundations of a wall would be destabilised by excavating below it, and then burning the supports down, hopefully causing the defences to collapse. The advent of explosive powder added a new element to the mix. Instead of just relying on gravity, gunpowder could be placed below the foundations to add an extra kick. Known to the conspirators by reputation as a brave, stalwart, and zealous Catholic with years of experience with explosives, Fawkes was an obvious choice for Catesby's plot. By May 1604, Fawkes was back in England for the first time in more than a decade, and brought into Catesby's confidence. The plan was, on the face of it, quite simple. Percy rented a property neighbouring the seat of the House of Lords, the conspirators would tunnel through the cellar of this property into the undercroft of the palace. Fawkes, having been absent from England for a decade, and therefore unlikely to be recognised, would pose as Percy's servant and organise the digging, while Catesby's house on the other side of the Thames acted as a convenient store for the gunpowder, which could be ferried across the Thames overnight. With Parliament due to begin a session in February 1605, Work began in earnest. The opening of the House of Lords was the only guaranteed opportunity to have all the conspirators' targets in one place. The King, naturally, but also his heir, Prince Henry Frederick, the Privy Council, including the hated Cecil, the bishops of the Church of England, and the leading Protestant nobility of the kingdom. If the plan went as hoped, Catesby would decapitate the Protestant English state, and open the door for the second part of the plan, the capture and crowning of Princess Elizabeth as the new Catholic monarch. 
that countless innocents would also be killed alongside Catesby's targets was of no concern. Luckily for all those involved, excepting the plotters of course, the plan did not go off without a hitch. The Anglo-Scottish Commission that James established last week to decide how to best integrate the two kingdoms, well, they took up residence in Percy's rented building in the autumn of 1604. Noisily digging a treason tunnel beneath the feet of several royal commissioners was somewhat difficult, and so the work was delayed until December. By Christmas Eve, they had reached the wall of the palace's undercroft, only to learn that Parliament's opening had been delayed once again due to plague, and the work was suspended. Once they began again, the conspirators spent a fortnight trying to dig through the strong foundations of the palace, drafting in three more recruits, two of which were family members of the conspirators, to bring some extra muscle. All this work was for naught, however, when it was learned that a coal merchant, who had resided in a chamber within the House of Lords itself, was moving out. Percy arranged to buy the lease, and the mine was abandoned. With access to the palace itself, there was no need for a tunnel. As they waited for Parliament to open, the plotters dispersed. Fawkes returned to Flanders, preparing the political ground for their success by explaining their plans to local allies to spread after the fact. Catesby attempted to secure further financial support, he was nearly bankrupt, and Percy could not pay for everything. Three more men, all wealthy, were sworn to secrecy and then brought into the circle. These three were not overly keen, with one, Francis Tresham, offering Catesby a small fortune if he called off the plot, which Catesby accepted and made a vague promise to do so. As the proposed October opening of Parliament approached, Fawkes and Winter returned to London with fresh barrels of gunpowder, out of a fear that the delay might have reduced the prepared powder's potency. Once again, the opening of Parliament was delayed, but only for a month this time. The ceremony, where King, Bishops and Lords would all be present, would take place on the 5th of November, 1605. By the end of October, it was learnt that Prince Henry would not be attending, and Catesby began planning his capture, but no preparations were made. All was set for the master stroke that would herald the return of England, Scotland and Ireland into the Catholic fold. In one explosive moment, after two years of scheming, preparation and digging, Catesby would be triumphant. And then, someone talked. Someone always talks. My lord, out of the love I bear to some of your friends, I have a care of your preservation. Therefore I would advise you, as you tender your life, to devise some excuse to shift your attendance at this Parliament. For God and man hath concurred to punish the wickedness of this time. And think not slightly of this advertisement, but retire yourself into your country where you may expect the event in safety. For though there be no appearance of any stir, yet I say they shall receive a terrible blow, this Parliament, and yet they shall not see who hurts them. That is an excerpt from a letter sent to William Parker, 4th Baron Monteagle. Monteagle was a Catholic noble, 
and his involvement in the plot has been suspected ever since he rushed to court to reveal this letter. The conspirators, as commoners, were thought to require aristocratic support in their coup. Aside from the patronising attitude of society which expected any plot of this calibre to require a noble mastermind, direct aristocratic support would be vital in any post-explosion settlement. Princess Elizabeth would be but a child, and no commoner could be her regent after all. NQOCD. Monteagle faced this suspicion, as did the ninth Earl of Northumberland, Henry Percy, cousin to Thomas Percy. Northumberland had been suspected of being sympathetic to the earlier main and by plots, but nothing had come of it. His familial relationship with one of the key conspirators of the gunpowder treason would reopen these old suspicions. Whoever wrote the Monteagle letter, be it a conspirator concerned about losing such a close ally, or Monteagle himself, feeling cold feet and seeking a valiant escape from a plot he was involved in, Monteagle presented it to the court on the 27th of October. Winter learnt of this from a friend in the Lord's household and confronted Catesby, telling him that the game was up. Catesby, whether from confidence or religious conviction, sent Fawkes to check on the gunpowder. Fawkes did so, and reported back that nothing had been disturbed. Hoping against hope that the letter would not be taken seriously at court, the conspirators continued to prepare for the big day. On the 1st of November, they met with Tresham, accused the clearly unwilling member of the plot of sending the letter which he denied. The plotters rapidly began to lose heart, with the exception of Catesby, Fawkes and Percy, who had returned from the north. Percy, brash as ever, demanded they see it through, and the next day, on the 4th of November, he met with his cousin, the Earl of Northumberland, and reported back that the wheels of government were still turning. The opening of Parliament was still on schedule. The Monteagle letter must not have been taken seriously. So Fawkes, a lamp and match in hand, descended into the vault beneath the House of Lords. Except the letter had been taken seriously. The day that Fawkes entered the vault, the Earl of Suffolk undertook his traditional inspection of the House of Lords, accompanied by Lord Monteagle, but with more scrutiny than usual. After checking the main chambers, the party searched the basements and vaults beneath, where they found a man sitting in a vault next to some firewood. A very large amount of firewood, actually. Suffolk asked who the man was, and who owned all this firewood. The man gave his name as John Johnson, and named Thomas Percy as his master and the owner of the vault and the firewood. Apparently satisfied with this answer, Suffolk and friends left the palace and returned to court. Then, Monteagle pointed out how odd it was that Percy, who he had known for years, had never mentioned owning a vault in Westminster. How strange. Oh, and he's a Catholic, did I mention that? James, alerted to this news, was taking no chances. He ordered another search to take place, and the search party, led by Sir Thomas Nivett, discovered John Johnson once more at around midnight. Suspicious that this man was still here, and dressed in travelling clothes, 
Nivett had Mr. Johnson arrested and ordered the firewood moved. Hidden beneath the timber were 36 barrels of gunpowder, almost a ton of explosives that would not look out of place on a battlefield. When writing this episode, I vaguely remembered a documentary I watched years ago, where a team built a replica of the House of Lords and filled it with the quantity of gunpowder that the plotters had placed. Now, this was a documentary meant to entertain, so I can't speak to the accuracy of it, but having looked it up, the calculations are believable. It is estimated that, had the plot unfolded as planned, the explosion would have utterly destroyed the House of Lords, killing everyone inside and within a hundred metres, and scattering their remains across London. Again, this was a fun documentary and not hard scholarship, but it's hard to believe that anyone at the opening ceremony would have survived. Speaking of survival, this was the thing on the other conspirators' minds on the morning of the 5th of November, as word had spread around London that a man had been captured guarding a stash of gunpowder under the House of Lords. Catesby and the other ringleaders fled north, arming themselves with pistols before taking shelter at Dunchurch. Here, they joined a group of pre-gathered dissidents, who eagerly awaited news from the capital. It was not the news they hoped for. The remaining conspirators hoped the kingdom would rise, as they believed it would, in support of the true church, as their armed bands slowly dwindled. In the meantime, they raided Warwick Castle for horses in the evening of the 5th, and then roamed around the Midlands for the next two days. On the night of the 7th, while drying off a small amount of gunpowder near the fire of Hull Beach House in Staffordshire, the explosive detonated. Now, no one was killed, that would be too ironic, but some of the plotters, including Catesby, were injured in the accident, which they appear to have taken as a sign of divine displeasure. In a final gesture of defiance, the conspirators resolved to fight to the death. Royal forces were close behind them, led by the Sheriff of Worcester and 200 men. Armed with pistols and swords, the plotters took up position in the courtyard of the house to face them. They were hopelessly outnumbered, and they knew it. According to legend, both Catesby and Percy were killed by the same bullet. Prisoners were taken, and the dead were buried near Holbeach, only for Catesby and Percy's corpses to be exhumed and their heads put on spikes. Many of the survivors were condemned as traitors and executed in the counties. Winter joined Fawkes as the only one of the core conspirators to be captured alive. It is from these two men that most of the workings of the plot are known, and that naturally affects our understanding of events. Fawkes was not included in everything, and so Winter had a free hand in sketching out the whole business. Both were quite willing to lay extra blame at the feet of their dead comrades, in the vain hope that this might spare them. It did not. Fawkes, at his interrogation, began defiant and stubborn. He refused to name anyone other than Percy, whose association was known both from his lease of the vault and Fawkes's lie about being his servant. He admitted to spending time in Flanders, but when asked why, he said, quote, to see the country and to pass away the time, end quote. He was quite happy to express his negative opinions of Scots, 
and to tell the king, apparently to his face, how much he wished the plot had successfully killed him and all the Scots in his court. He only revealed his name two days after his capture, and his personal belongings were searched, revealing correspondence that gave his surname. News of the capture of Winter and the death of the other conspirators affected Fawkes' experience. While the conspirators were at large attempting to raise rebellion, the court sanctioned the use of torture on this mysterious John Johnson. Once they were put down, and Winter was en route to the tower, the use of torture was abandoned. There was no need anymore, there was no direct emergency. The government had things under control. Fawkes, Winter, and six others were brought to trial in Westminster Hall in January 1606. While all but one pled not guilty, this was over minor disagreements in the charges. Everyone knew they had committed treason. The court knew they were guilty, the plotters knew they would die. On the 30th of January, four of those condemned faced the traitor's death in St Paul's churchyard. The day after, the other four, Thomas Winter and Guy Fawkes included, went to their deaths in the old palace yard at Westminster. The Earl of Northumberland, Henry Percy, was not found guilty of knowing about the plot, but suspicion remained, and the Star Chamber convicted him on a collection of more minor crimes, for which Northumberland would be imprisoned in the Tower for over 15 years. It wasn't an uncomfortable life by any stretch. The Tower wasn't just a dungeon, and as a rich noble, Northumberland could keep the small creature comforts. Twenty servants, his own private library, a tennis court, bowling green, and the conversation of visiting scholars, and his neighbour and smoking buddy, Sir Walter Raleigh. By the dawn of 1606, almost three years since the death of Elizabeth, James was much more secure. Three plots had made it obvious that he had his enemies, but they had not attracted the vast support he had feared, and his nobility were not jumping at the chance to kill him. Thank you for listening to Pax Britannica. Thank you to my own nobility for not only not trying to assassinate me, but for supporting me on Patreon. Thanks specifically to Elaine, Countess Dickens, Jean, Countess Buckley, Christopher, Earl of Grogan, Brendan, the first Earl Bonner, Lady Michelle, Duchess of Devon, and the Royal Headsman, executed today. If you want to earn your own seat in the House of Lords, now without gunpowder in the basement, go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica. My featured review this week is from Tracy, who said, Well-researched, well-written, and beautifully narrated. I expected nothing less after listening to the history of witchcraft. Nice to have another good listen to look forward to each week. Thank you, Sam. No, thank you, Tracy. Beautifully narrated, that's lovely. Thanks again to Sounds Like an Earful for the music used in today's episode, to all of my nobility, and to you for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. 
Chumba. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello. My name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.